Do you know the difference between a blimp and a zeppelin? Do you know what a dirigible is? Do you know anything about the short but fascinating era of the airship outside of, like, steampunk art? Anyway, if the answer is no to some or all of those, listen, because that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'll Have to Think About That, a podcast in which we talk about history worth knowing, questions worth asking, and ideas worth considering, all in response to the incomplete education that so many of us have. Thanks for listening today. I was inspired to do this episode, frankly, from an Iron Maiden song. And so in a way, this episode is a little bit of my Metal Makes You Smarter theme of posts uh, and a more traditional, I have to, I'll have to think about it kind of post. But uh, let me give you a little bit of background. Now, in 2014, Iron Maiden released their 16th studio album called Book of Souls. And one of the songs, the last song on the two CD or three vinyl disc set, pretty amazing, is a tune called Empire of the Clouds that clocks in at a little over 18 minutes long. Really brilliant piece of music. I'll put links to it so you can listen to it and read the lyrics. Anyway, the song is about a British airship that crashed during this era that I'm going to talk about called the R101 and about what the British sought to do with it and how it was launched and then how it was crashed and the loss of life that was in it. It's, it's really a great uh, kind of inspiring but also tragic story. Some great lyrics and some great musicianship, but really it's the story at the root of it that's so fascinating. And I got to thinking, like, I've heard of the Hindenburg, and you know, maybe I would hope at least most of you heard of the Hindenburg. Hindenburg disaster. It was a German Zeppelin. Remember, a Zeppelin and a blimp are two different animals. I'll get to that. But the Hindenburg was a German Zeppelin that burned in New Jersey in the late 1930s, killing a number of passengers and crew. Um, and in a lot of ways really heralded the end of the, the classic or first age or thus far only age of the airship. A lot of people have heard of that and you've seen images. Actually, there's a Led Zeppelin album cover that has one of the iconic images of the Hindenburg burning. But anyway, most of you, I'm going to guess, have heard of the Hindenburg. You probably don't know a whole lot of details about what happened or where it came from or you know how it was destroyed, that kind of thing. But you've heard of the Hindenburg. My guess is that probably none of you have heard of the R101 or its sister ship, the R100. You've probably never heard of the USS Akron or the USS Macon. You haven't heard of some of the other ones, uh, some of the other major, call them airships, from this era. And I just got to thinking, listening to this song over and over again over the last few years, that I wanted to learn more about this really forgotten era. So that's what today's episode is about. Okay, very broadly speaking, the age of the airship exists between the first powered flight of the Wright brothers and World War II. And really its height, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll narrow that focus, its height is really between the world wars. The airships played a role in World War I, and they existed before World War I, but the real height of the era of the airship is like right after World War I to right before World War II. It's not even 20 years. Let's go ahead, though, first and nail down some definitions, Okay. An airship, in this context, is a lighter-than-air vehicle. It's not heavier than air, like a fixed-wing airplane or a helicopter. That is, the aircraft itself 
with its internal components, a significant amount of which is gas that's lighter than air, itself is lighter than air. That is how it floats. Okay, that's how it, it, it gets airborne. The two major types of airships are the Zeppelin and the blimp. And the difference is that a blimp's envelope, that is the portion of it that is full of the lighter-than-air gas, itself has its, its structure and its, um, its, its shape maintained by the pressure of the gas. So essentially a blimp is a big balloon, or in large part is a big balloon that's shaped but it, it remains rigid because of the pressure. Now, a Zeppelin is different. A Zeppelin actually has an interior or an internal superstructure and typically then does not have, it itself is not full of the lighter-than-air gas, but rather it's full of gas, balloons, bags, bubbles, things like that, containers that contain, you know, massive amounts of cubic footage of this lighter-than-air gas, and there therefore has to be enough of it in either of these things to overcome the weight of the structure itself, whatever the structure is made of. So Zeppelin has a, again, has like an internal superstructure, a blimp, less so. Now dirigible, I've heard the word dirigible used as a noun. It's actually an adjective. It just means a steerable airship. So it's an airship that can be steered. So like if you've ever had the, the pleasure of seeing, you know, like a, a sports blimp, you know, like the, the Goodyear blimp, you'll see that the thing has motor pods, has engine pods that are attached to the bottom of it that have propellers that make it go, that give it direction and forward thrust and therefore makes it steerable. Now, the difference here between a Zeppelin and a blimp and a balloon, a hot air balloon, should be obvious. A balloon is not dirigible. It is not steerable. It just goes where the wind takes you, whereas a Zeppelin or a blimp, because it has powered engines that can be, um, you know, and, and control surfaces like fins and stabilizers, it can be steered. So a couple of definitions that are, that are really important. And I'm going to talk mainly about Zeppelins here because really this golden age, uh, or as I said before, kind of only age thus far of the airship was really focused around the Zeppelin, these superstructure built um, vehicles that had massive amounts of lighter than air gas to give them lift. And what's fascinating, if you know anything about lift and how it's generated, and what surfaces and what kind of thrust are required to create lift, like over a wing on a fixed wing aircraft. Um, a lot of the Zeppelins that were built into the 20s and 30s actually did generate some lift of themselves. You know, this is parallel with the development of the first aircraft. You know, the Wright brothers fly. World War I brings this huge explosion of uh, engineering and, and knowledge of aircraft, of fixed-wing aircraft. And so this understanding of aerodynamics is, uh, is developing, and it's used in both worlds, in the fixed-wing aircraft world, but also in the airship world. And so some of these ships, because of their shape, when forward thrust was applied, they did generate some additional lift. Um, but the vast majority, I just want to put this to rest, the vast majority, obviously, of, of the force that kept these things aloft was the lighter-than-air gas. Now, there are two main lighter-than-air gases that were used. There was hydrogen, which is widely available worldwide uh, and is also the lightest element on the periodic table. And then there's helium. Um, helium, because of its atomic structure, is twice as heavy as hydrogen, but still considerably lighter than air. Now, I'm not going to get into the math of these things, but one of the issues 
that uh, that sits kind of at the root of some of the problems with airships is those two gases, hydrogen and helium. Hydrogen because it's flammable. It's really flammable. And so those countries whose airships used hydrogen, which is primarily not the United States, pretty much every country but the United States used hydrogen, really had to take into consideration this problem of flammability and that this gigantic, you know, millions of cubic feet of explosive gas were, were necessary to keep this thing aloft. Helium, on the other hand, is not explosive. Helium also is not as widely available in the world. There's the United States has more sources of helium within our own borders than other countries did at that time. And so that was a resource that U.S. airships used primarily, whereas hydrogen was used for others. But helium also had the drawback that it wasn't as light, which limited how big the ship could be, how heavy it could be, how much cargo it could hold, all those kinds of things. Another piece that I'll just mention, but I'm not going to get into the physics of it, is that of altitude and air pressure. You know, the higher you go up in altitude, the lower the air pressure. That's why we have pressurized cabins on, um, on airplanes nowadays. And this, this caused, this created challenges for airship designers and airship crew because depending on the gas that was being used, depending on the outside temperature, depending on other atmospheric uh, conditions like barometric pressure, altitude, that is the flight ceiling of these, these craft, could change depending on those changing um, meteorological conditions. So there's a little bit of general background, terminology and ideas. My starting point is in 1900 with the first true Zeppelin, which flies in July of that year. Now, it's named after Count von Zeppelin, who's a German aristocrat and tinkerer who began experimenting with airship designs in the 1890s. And this company, is named after him, goes to build the first of these, and they name it the Zeppelin. And so we associate... It's, Zeppelin is to rigid airship what Kleenex is to tissues. You know, people say Kleenex whether they're actually using branded Kleenex or not. We refer to these rigid airships as zeppelins because that's the most that was the most commonly known type and really the most successful design at the time. So the first true zeppelin, capital Z, flies in uh, July of 1900 and over a period of years the designers go back and they revisit and they redesign and they refine and they improve this thing for size, for stability, for longevity in the air. Um, airspeed, all those kinds of things. So Germany is really at the, the forefront of this. The French also fly uh, airships, the United States and Great Britain. In fact, the first British airship is commissioned in 1908 by the Royal Navy, and its official name is His Majesty's Airship Number 1. This first decade or so, from like 1900 to the outbreak of World War One, is is really defined by experimentation. A lot of these airships are built by different countries, and they crash often, and then they are redesigned, and then they crash again, and then they're redesigned again. I mean, this, this is, again, it's 10 to 15 years of a brand new technology that doesn't have an instruction manual, and these engineers and these pilots and these designers just have to, they have to make it up as they go, and, and they do. Now, World War One comes in 1914. We have powered flight taking part in warfare 
in two different ways for the first time. We have airplanes and we have airships. And in an instance of life imitating art, Germany uses Zeppelins to bomb England during the war. H.G. Wells, the science fiction author, had written a book in 1908 called The War in the Air. And in it is a story of fleets of massive airships destroying, leveling cities and destroying fleets. And so as I said, life imitates art, and the Germans use Zeppelins to actually bomb targets within England, you know, well behind the lines. It's the first time that this is done. The level of damage is insignificant. A couple hundred people are killed, but it does force the British to divert assets to more home defense and to trying to stop these things before they get over uh, uh, England itself. A few of them are shot down. Far more are lost by the Germans in accidents. And the the call it the functional impact of the airship on World War One in terms of deciding battles is is negligible, but as a psychological factor, and also maybe as a harbinger or a promise of the future, or what the future could hold for strategic bombing, the idea that a war could be waged almost cleanly from the air instead of on the ground, really gets in the into the souls of some thinkers between the wars, and this actually considerably shapes the Allied war effort during World War II, but I'm not going to get into that. Anyway, my point here is to to bring us up to about 1920 or so, end of World War I, and almost two decades now of airships being used by different countries. And this is where the British and the Germans both, they really seem to, to take the lead in the development of these things, and not just development of them as, uh, as like engineering entities, like as the, the, the craft themselves, but as an idea, like what are we going to do with these things? And so the British, their government, comes up with, in 1921, what is referred to as the Imperial Airship Scheme. And this is a, a plan by the British to develop airships to link their empire, which at that point, you know, 100 years ago, is global. Link it together by regular airship routes. And there's, there's kind of a, like a, a romance to this. Think about it, this, this idea of, you know, the English, they have colonies all over. They have Australia and they have Hong Kong and Canada and elsewhere, and all these different places. And they had connected their empire together with their navy and protected uh, maritime commerce around the world for a long time in order to hold on to their empire. And now they're thinking of adding this additional layer in the sky through a series of these airship routes and constant travel of the airships. You know, they have this dream of maybe decades down the road where their whole empire is connected together, almost like, like rail lines, but in the sky in airships. And so they, during the 1920s, come up with these plans to try to spur development engineering development of these airships in both the government and the private sectors. The two main products of this scheme, as it was called, were the R-100 and the R-101. These were both commissioned in the mid-1920s by the British government. They had the same specifications. In other words, the British government said, we need something to be able to go this far, operate for this amount of time, carry this amount of cargo and this many people. But what they decided to do, and I think this is actually really clever, is that they would have the R-100 developed by a private company, and then the R-101 was to be developed by a government agency. It's kind of funny, actually, because they, the, the ships, when they were in development, were referred to as the capitalist ship and the socialist ship. 
So the R-100 was the capitalist airship and the uh, R-101 was the socialist airship. It's kind of a joke because, you know, one of them is being developed by the, the free or by the, uh, the private sector and one of them is de- being developed under, uh, under government watch. But the overall idea was to spur creative development and competition for the sake of, of innovation. This started in 1924 with an original goal of having construction begin by 1925, be completed by 1926, and for the R-101 in specific, have test flights begin by 1927. There were multiple delays for both the R-100 and the R-101. And again, let's go back in time here and think, you know, this is the mid-1920s. The Wright brothers only flew in 1903. And so this entire world of endeavor of engineering and piloting and all the things that are attendant to flight is all very new. And so delays are, you know, shouldn't be a surprise. That said, neither the R-100 nor the R-101 fly until 1929. Both of these ships were recognized by their designers as being overweight um, and probably not having as much lift as, uh, as they needed in order to complete the types of missions that the British had envisioned for their empire. That's going to come back in a little bit. But to give you a sense of scope for these things, after the R-101 was enlarged, its final version, it was 777 feet long. It was 131 feet in diameter. Supposedly, it could go 71 miles an hour in the air and had an interior volume of about 5.5 million cubic feet. And incidentally, the original designs for the R100 and the R101 asked for ships of at least 8 million cubic feet because they were considering how much lift they were going to have to generate to haul the kinds of things that they wanted to haul. But since these were in effect, kind of test beds, they went with, with smaller ships. But for by way of comparison, a, a 747 is like 200-some-odd feet long. So 777 feet is, is massive. I mean, that's more than two-and-a-half football fields in length, and the thing is, in diameter, almost half of a fo- football field in length. So just this, this ship is, is like staggering in, in size. The R-101 was test-flown in 1929-1930, and it was modified. As I said, it was actually extended in length by about 40-some-odd feet, and some other changes were made to it in response to its test flights. And it was scheduled for its maiden voyage, like its true first voyage in this empire of the clouds that the British were trying to create in October of 1930, when it was scheduled to fly from southern England all the way to Karachi, Um, which was then part of the British colony in India. So it's early October 1930, and a number of dignitaries, um, including the government official who was in charge of the airship program, as well as the crew of the R101, board the ship in southern England, and they leave for Karachi with several um, stopping points along the way for refueling and, and things like that. The tragedy is that its maiden, its only voyage, like official operational voyage, lasted about seven some odd hours because at a little after 2 a.m. on October 5th of 1930, in stormy weather just over France, the R101 crashed. Of the 54 people on board, um, 46 were killed in the crash. Two more later died in the hospital so that there were six survivors. Uh, The bodies were 
sent back to England on the 10th of October, and there was a period of national mourning. The bodies laid in state. There are monuments in France and in England to this. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of, of what happened, although it's um, the inquiry, rather, that was launched afterward and lots of historical research by engineers and buffs over the last you know 90 years almost uh, point to the probability that, um, that there may have been a tear up in the front and uh, that let out some gas, which caused the thing to go nose down, which affected the, the lift that it was generating. And then the storms, the, the wind may have uh, played a role in this possible crew error. Not going to go into the details, like I said, but um, the thing crashes and it burns. In fact, because of the fuel that was on board it for the engines, um, the fire is actually burning into the next day when rescue crews arrive. I've included links to images and uh, more detailed accounts of the crash. The important thing to come away from the R101 crash with, however, is that this really ends British goals or designs for an empire of the clouds, as the Iron Maiden song is called. Uh, Take things in context here. It's fall of 1930. These airships are experimental still, really, Uh, If you look at the list of airships that are being used by European countries and some South American countries in the United States during this era that I'm talking about, there's a really long list of crashes. So these things are really expensive. They're not particularly reliable looking back on them, you know, from from our perspective. And it's 1930. The Great Depression is spreading across the, the Northern Hemisphere, and England just pretty much abandons this as a, uh, as a possibility. Other countries, however, like Germany and the United States, are not yet ready to give up on the possibility of airships. To this end, the United States Navy in 1931 commissions the construction of two airships, the USS Akron and the USS Macon, which are sister ships, both of which are bigger than the R-101. They're about eight or nine feet longer. They come in officially at 785 feet, which actually makes them the largest helium-filled airships ever. Um, The Zeppelins that are built by the Germans a little later are larger, but those are hydrogen-filled. So if you're looking for records, there you go. USS Akron, USS Macon. Both these ships were built for scouting and observation purposes, primarily by the U.S. Navy, but both of them also carried fixed-wing aircraft. The Akron carried five small fixed-wing scouting planes, making it an airborne aircraft carrier. It's like the Shield helicarrier, but in the 1930s. So that's pretty cool, I think. Um, Anyway, both of these met their ends uh, in crashes. The Akron had just a a short few-year service life, had flown back and forth across the country several times, and had been involved in several accidents. And in 1933, was caught in heavy weather off the coast of New Jersey after flying out of New England and, uh, and crashed. Most of the crew apparently survived the crash into the ocean, but because of the temperatures, a lot of them drowned or died of hypothermia. 73 of its crew died and three were rescued. They were rescued actually by a German merchant ship. Interesting thing, too, is that the Akron was not equipped with any life preservers. I suppose they thought, well, since it's in the air, why do we need something like that? But they were flying over water. And so this causes a change in policy. And its sister ship, the USS Macon, soon thereafter has itself outfitted with life preservers. 
But in 1935, the Macon crashes off of Point Sur, off the central coast of California, and almost all of its crew survives because of warmer water and also the fact that they had life preservers. This, these crashes of these sister ships heralds really the end of the, the, the rigid airship program that the United States Navy and on a larger scale, the U.S. military was, was looking into in the 1930s. So the British give up in the early 30s. The U.S. gives up in the mid-30s. Germany, as it rearms, as you know, Hitler comes into power in 1933 and is looking to make Germany you know, an A-list country technologically, economically, politically, all those things in terms of clout, there is a renewed interest in anything that enables the Germans to you know, wave their flag and, uh, and, and show themselves as a, an advanced people. And so the German Zeppelin program continues and leads to the most famous of these, which is the Zeppelin, the Hindenburg which itself is launched in March of 1936. It makes a total of 63 flights, some to as far away as Rio de Janeiro in Brazil and around Europe. And on May 6th of 1937, in Manchester Township, New Jersey, of the, um, of the 97 people on board, that was 36 passengers and 61 crew, 13 passengers and 22 crew, so a total of 35 people on board the Hindenburg are killed, and one person was killed on the ground. Again, I'm not going to go into the great gory details of why this thing crashed and, and, well, crashed and burned, literally. But I will add that it was a hydrogen-filled vessel, and so it burned dramatically. Um, And I'll include some pictures, and um, I'll find a link to the very famous audio of one of the news, a radio news reporter who was watching it, watching its its arrival. And it was kind of a big deal, this huge airship coming to America. This is 1937, so this is almost two and a half years before the war breaks out. Maybe there are people who are thinking the Nazis and Adolf Hitler are maybe a little off, a little odd. You know, there are some people who are maybe starting to worry about some of the rhetoric that's coming out of Germany. And also the fact that a year before they had thrown off the Treaty of Versailles. But remember that in 1937, there's no war. And so uh, we're all supposedly still, if not allies, at least at peace with one another. So there is, there is trade and there is tourism between these countries. And it's a really big deal when this massive airship arrives. And so it's a big deal in the U.S. news. And so it's being broadcast, the story of it live on the radio. And the thing burns and kills 35 people and one on the ground. I'll include links to that. That is really the death knell of the airship, the golden age, first age, whatever you want to call it, of the airship, is the the death of the, the Hindenburg. And there's also something else, that by the late 30s, aircraft technology, fixed wing, heavier than air uh, aircraft technology, has gotten to a point where the problems of how much weight can and an airborne vehicle, whether it's lighter than air or heavier than air, how much weight can it carry? How many people can it carry? How fast can it go? How far can it go? The fixed-wing, heavier-than-air aircraft are proving to be more reliable, more effective, um, and safer. And so really, they, they, it's, it's a couple of things. You have some of these very dramatic accidents that happen for the R101, that happen for the Macon and the Akron, and then you have this you know, really dramatic example of an accident in the Hindenburg. But then you've also got concurrent development of technologies on another front that just 
just take the airship and kind of push it aside. It's like this is this is just not working out. You know, you maybe could think in a figurative sense that the different countries and developers of these realized by the late 30s that what they were able to accomplish technologically and, and through their engineering acumen at that point was just not enough to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish in the skies. And so the airship drifts off into, into history. This age comes to a close and fixed-wing, heavier-than-air aircraft become the answer that you, know, you could say humanity was looking for in the skies. I want to go back in closing here to my original impetus for this episode. And again, it's this song, Empire of the Clouds. I will include a link to a lyric video and also just to the lyrics itself. If you don't want to commit 18 minutes, I highly recommend you do because it's a great song. But, uh, but I recommend that you go read the story that I'll link of the crash of the R101 and then read the lyrics to the song. Really, like I said, it tells a story of human ambition, of hope, of daring, maybe some ego, um, and, uh, and then the tragedy that's, that's wrapped up in that as things fall short of what we, what we dream them to be. One final comment. I've talked about this first age of the airship, or thus far only age of the airship. The airship's actually not dead. We're all familiar in the United States with the Goodyear blimp. But there are companies around the world that even today in 2020 are looking at the possibility of high-efficiency airships that could run on very little fuel and could be used to deliver supplies, people, whatever, to like emergency situations, to places that couldn't be easily reached by fixed-wing aircraft or even helicopters, but could behave in, the, in a manner of a helicopter because the things can hover. And so there, there still is, I don't know if you'd call it hope, but there's still possibility of a future role for some kind of an airship. And I'll put some links to articles about those contemporary efforts to resurrect or uh, reform this piece of technology. Anyway, go to the links, look at the pictures, read the information, and think about it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. You can leave feedback at my show site, which is thinkaboutthat.podbean.com. You can also subscribe there. I'd appreciate that. And share this out to anyone you think would be interested in listening. I'll be up on iTunes and Google Play shortly. Have a great day.